0: This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at pgasuperstore.com. Now, back to you, Chris.
1: And now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to follow Peter on his Facebook page and on Twitter as well, at Peter Kessler. And also be sure to check out Peter's podcast. It's called Reading the Break, which can be found over on SoundCloud, and you can check it out on our homepage as well and next on the t.net. No one knows more about the history of the game of golf than Peter Kessler does. He's interviewed every major golf figure of the 20th and 21st centuries. When you layer on top of that his magical voice and thousands of great stories, well, then you've really got someone, and someone who is very special, and that's Peter Kessler. There are some great contributors, folks, to the game of golf that are in the World Golf Hall of Fame. People like Frank Tricinian and Peter Alice, Henry Longhurst. Well, they need a fourth bust in there created for Peter Kessler. He is just a treasure of the game of golf, just as much as anybody else has ever been. And I am honored that he is back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Peter. Happy New Year, my friend. I'm writing down everything you said as furiously and as quickly as I can. I
0: think I've got it. I'm going to read it to myself every morning when I get up to start my day in a really great way. Thank you, buddy.
1: Absolutely, Peter. So, Peter, I was out on your Twitter page, and I saw that you have Dustin Johnson's 436-yard tee shot that uh, he almost held, by the way, as the greatest shot of all time, which is surprising to me. Help me understand why you think so.
0: I didn't say that at all. I said pretty much just the opposite, that it was a totally lucky shot. I said it was downhill. I said it was downwind. I said he got 100 yards of roll down. He got a carom 40 yards to the right. And there was nothing about the shot that he'll ever remember that anybody in the field will ever remember or anybody who follows golf will ever remember. It was Brandel Chamblee who said it was the greatest shot ever. So I took exception to that, and I said exactly what I just said now. And then how about this? Two days ago, Dustin Johnson comes out and says, well, it was a totally lucky shot. He said, first of all, you got to remember it was straight downhill. I had a 30-yard wind behind my back. It caromed 40 yards to the right. And it was just one of those things, I don't normally hit the ball that far, but all those factors combined to give me a really happy and lucky result. And so I put that on Twitter and I said, that is verbatim what I said when he hit that shot. So I thought nothing of the shot at the time, other than that it was a lucky shot. I have since said that even players who can't break a hundred know the difference between a good shot and a lucky shot. So when a, a figure on the golf channel with a national platform who won on the PGA tour doesn't know the difference between a great shot and a totally fluky lucky shot in a tournament that not one of your listeners right now can email you and say what the name of the tournament is. Not one person knows what the name of that tournament was. And it took place on the side of a in Hawaii, important shots and great shots are done in major championships by great players at critical moments. That was complete nonsense, not worth discussing on any level whatsoever.
1: Yeah, and that's, and that's how I would have guessed that you, you would have thought about it, knowing you, I, th- I think the way that I do, you know, I, I would have guessed, you know, when, when, you, when Peter Kessler puts together his list of, you know, whatever, five or ten greatest shots of all time, they probably all came in a major tournament to win in the final round or something along those lines. I, I would guess, you know, something like a, a, you know the Nicholas one iron at Pebble Beach or the Hogan one iron at the Open at Marion or you know Tiger's chip in '05 or Nicholas's putt uh, on the 16th in the 75 Masters. Where, where are where are you with the with, with the top shots of all time? What what would you put in your top two or three?
0: Well, I mean, you know. Saying that the Dustin Johnson shot was anything special is like saying the greatest pass Tom Brady ever threw was in a 38-7 blowout in week three. It's like, what 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 are you talking about? So obviously the greatest shots of all time are, were... Bobby Jones making a 12-footer on the last hole at the U.S. Open in 1929 at wing Foot after just making a pair of sevens to throw away a lead to get into the playoff the next day, a 36-hole playoff that he won by 23 shots. Then I would look at Gene Sarazen's double eagle in 1935 when he holed his turf rider 4-wood from 230 yards on the 15th hole at Augusta National for a two, playing with Walter Hagen, who said, Hurry up, Gene. I've got a date tonight. Bobby Jones was watching from behind the green one of 25 people. Byron Nelson was playing 17, and he saw the ball go in. so four seminal figures out of 25 or 27 people saw that ball go into the hole. But what people forget is he still had to make three pars to get into the playoff, and on the 18th hole, he had to hit four into the green, None of this you know wedge nonsense, like they do today because the ball goes you know hundreds of yards to far he had a four wood into the last hole had a 40 foot putt he shook it down there to four feet rattled in the four footer to get into the playoff which he won the next day i would vote for arnold's drive on the first hole of the u.s open in the fourth round in 1960 which led him to birdie five of the first six holes and catapult them to a Final round, 65, when he was seven shots behind to go ahead and beat a young Jack, 20-year-old Jack Nicholas by two shots, who shot a 39 on the last nine just because he didn't putt well. He was playing with Hogan, who had hit 34 greens that day. They still played the double rounds on Saturdays at the U.S. Open through 1964 when Ken Venturi won that year. And Jack told me he had a two-footer on one of the holes on the last nine. And he saw a ball mark, a pitch mark between his ball and the hole. And he didn't fix it because he didn't want to hold up Hogan, and he missed the putt. And, of course, he never did that again. And I would say Jack's drive to the 90th hole at the old course at St. Andrews in 1970 against Doug Sanders when he drove it through the green on the par 4-18th and got it up and down for the winning birdie to win by a shot. I would say Jack Nicholas's four iron to the 15th hole in the 1986 Masters that he hit 10 feet left of the hole and made for an eagle three and then went birdie-birdie and ended up winning the golf tournament. And Jack told me later that the easy thing about the four iron from 220 yards or so was that it didn't matter if it finished 10 feet to the right of the hole or 10 feet left of the hole. And I'm thinking, who's good enough to hit a four iron within 10 feet their target and I've mentioned that to two dozen pros and they all said man I can't do that with a lob wedge how do you do that with a four iron over water with the sun in your eyes and the golf tournament on the line and you're 46 years old 10 feet either way because the putts were equal in difficulty that's why it didn't matter if it was right or to the left I would nominate Sandy Lyles seven iron from the fairway bunker at the Masters that he hit to 15 feet and made the putt won the golf tournament I would say, Nick Faldo's two-iron on 13 in 1996 in the final round against Greg Norman. Uh, The tournament was still uh, undecided, even though Nick's now had the lead. He had picked up the six shots plus that he was behind at the beginning of the fourth round, and he had a very severe downhill side hill lie. And we talked about the shot because at first he took out five wood, and I said, so why didn't you hit it? And he said, I don't know. He said, I... I got over the 5-wood, and all I could see left was OB, and all I could see right was the water, so I took out a 2-iron, and and I thought that I could hit that in the middle of the green. I said, but isn't that a harder shot, club to hit, downhill, side hill lie, than a 5-wood that's got a lot more loft and a lot more forgiveness? And he said, yes, but I couldn't get the OB or the water out of my mind. I would take Tiger's chip to 16, and the final round of the 05 Masters, where he looked at the." shot over for five minutes and picked a shot. He later told me that there was the size of a quarter and he said he actually landed the ball on the spot the size of the quarter. Certainly one of the greatest shots ever hit. Uh, so, you know, there there's a list right there. I think the, uh, you know, if you want to pick something recent, um, I would say that the eagle putt that Jordan Speeth hit at the Open Championship last year was one of the most timely absolutely unbelievable daggers of all time in major championships. It helped him finish five under on the last five and beat Matt Kuchar, who was two under on the last five. So that was an audacious putt. And, you know, one of the super duper shots and Jack Nicholas 1972 U S open 71st hole, hits the flag stick with a one iron. The ball drops four inches away was pretty special um, so there's a pretty good list for you. I don't know how many that is, it is, but it's a whole
1: bunch. <laughs> it's a whole bunch. Uh, those are all fantastic. And, and Peter, I also saw a back-and-forth you had with someone on Twitter about Mark Rowe, about him being the most dishonest player ever. Talk, tell Remind our listeners who Mark Rowe is and why you think so. Well,
0: Mark Rowe is a journeyman English pro, He was the one who famously forgot to switch cards with Jesper Parnovic at the 2003 Open Championship, and Mark shot 66, and Jesper shot 81, but they didn't switch cards, so Jesper got the 66 in theory and signed for a lower score than he had, so he's DQ'd, and Mark's signed for a higher score than what he had in the 81 Stuck. And I played in the 2006 Dunhill Links Championship, which is like the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. And you play... The old course, Carnoustie, and Kings Barnes on the first three days. And then the 20 low two man teams out of 168 two man teams get to play the old course again on Sunday with the 55 low pros and ties. And in '02, I played with Thomas Levey, and I was a six. And in the first round, I shot 75 at the Old Course. I shot 75 at King's Barns, I shot 79 at Carnoustie, and we made the cut but he missed the cut, and he was the only player who got to play on Sunday who missed the individual cut, and I shot another 75 on Sunday at the old course, and I won him $25,000 that he wasn't going to get, and I said walked up to him after the round, and he couldn't have been happier about the whole thing and thanked me a million times, and I said, so where's my cut? And he said, oh, did you did you recently turn pro? So every time I see him, we we have a good giggle about that. So I'm in 06. I'm playing with uh, Spanish player Francesco Luna, I think was who it was. And uh, Mark Rowe was playing in his final event of the European tour of his whole career. And he was playing with Billy Getty, the great, great, great grandson of the famous William Getty, who never stopped talking. And Rowe never stopped talking. It was, oh, my goodness gracious. So we're playing the old course in the first round and I'm playing okay and my partner's playing okay and we come to the most famous hole on the course, the par 4 17th. It's a par 5 for regular play but a par 4 uh, in, cha- in, in the open championship and so row hits like most players do on that course is drive into the left rough because when you play off of the 17th tee, you've got to hit it over the corner of the old course hotel and it's just a very daunting shot and you know if you push it a tad you could hit the hotel and if you clear the corner of the hotel and you push it you could end up out of bounds so most players miss left so I missed short and left and hit a second shot just short of the green with a hybrid and Mark Rowe being a professional was longer than I was and he was in the left rough and he didn't notice that I was standing 10 feet behind him when he bent down and just picked his ball up out of a horrible lie in the left rough And then called to my partner, who was 75 yards further down the hole. He'd already hit his second shot and was walking towards the green. And Mark Rowe waved his arms like, hey, I'm taking a drop. And Luna just, you know, waved his hand like, hey, do whatever you have to do. So Rowe takes a drop. You have to remember, it's the old course. There's no such thing as an embedded ball at the old course. The ground is so hard at the old course that your feet, the first time you play the course, actually hurt. The soles of your feet hurt. I've never played anywhere else that that's the case. It's concrete. You couldn't have an embedded ball lie if you put the ball on the ground and stepped on it. It wouldn't go down. So he picks up the ball out of a bad lie, drops it, then bends down again and picks the ball up again and puts it on and puts it in a great spot um, on, on a big tuft of grass and plays his shot to the green. So I'm stupefied, and then he turns around and he sees I'm standing there and that I've obviously seen the whole thing, and he totally imploded. We got down to the green, and I had laid my second shot just short of the green and Rowe, with the perfect light, hit the middle of the green with a good shot, probably about a six iron, and I hit a running chip from the right side of the green to about 10 feet past the hole, which I had for four for three. Uh, because that you're getting I'm getting a shot on that hole for my team. So I so it's my turn to putt, and I go over to my ball to my marker and I start to put the ball down and Ro goes, Are you gonna putt are you gonna putt Peter? What are you doing? What are you doing, man? Let's go. We've gotta keep this thing moving along. Are you gonna hit your putt or you're not gonna hit your putt? And I looked at him and I gave him a look that said, We've got some serious issues here and he shut up and I went ahead and hit my putt and made my putt. We finish the 18th hole. We go into the scoring trailer. So I know he is DQ City uh, because of what he did by by twice doing something illegal on the 17th hole and telling my playing partner Luna, who was keeping the card, that he made a four. And I stood right there to make sure I heard him say it. So I watched Luna write down the four. We get into the scoring trailer and. For the first time that I'd ever played in a tournament, including the Dunhill Links with LeVay or anybody else. I didn't personally check the scorecard after Luna handed it to me and said, this is fine, you can sign it. Normally, I was meticulous. The exact opposite of Roberto DiVincenzo, who, of course, didn't really look at his scorecard that he signed at the Masters in 68. And if he had looked at it, he would have seen the fact that there was an error on the card that he was given a par instead of a birdie on the 17th hole. But he had a history, including the day before playing with Bob Goby, who won the Masters. Tournament. Gobi said, uh, I heard that Gobi said he never saw anybody look at a card so quickly. He said, Roberto didn't even look at the card, he just signed it. So I signed the card. It starts to rain, so we stay inside the scoring trailer till the rain stops. The woman who's got the cards, the official scorer, is sitting there looking at our cards, checking the hole by hole, and It gets ready to stop raining. You can feel it letting up. And all of a sudden, she said, everybody stay where they are. Nobody move. And we all said, what's up? And she said, there's something wrong with your scorecard, Peter and Mr. Luna. And I said, what's the problem? And she said, well... It looks like two holes have been juxtaposed, and I can see erasure marks. And one hole was erased and put in a number that was made on a different hole. And the same thing happened on that different hole. They put the the score was transposed with another hole. So if you sign that card and you leave the scoring trailer, that's the key here. If you leave the trailer, then it's a done deal. As long as you're inside the scoring tent, they can fix anything that. They they need to fix if there's a hole-by-hole mistake. So if it hadn't rained, we wouldn't have known that Mark Rowe erased the two scores, transposed them, and Luna looked at him like, "What, what in the world was that, Mr. Rowe? And Rowe looks at him and goes, oh, I'm such a stupid, I can't believe it, what an idiot I am. And I sat there and I thought, Do I call for a rules official? Do I bust him? It's an easy bust. He definitely gets DQ'd because he signed that card now. And we're getting ready to leave the trailer. And should I let him leave the trailer and call in a rules official? And I thought, you know, it's his last tournament ever. He'll be totally humiliated if I call him out on this. I'm a guest here. I don't want to cause a ruckus. I'm very good friends with the guy who runs the tournament, Johan Rupert, who owns Knightsbridge, which is Dunhill and Cartier and a number of other luxury brands. I had played in the tournament several times. I had made the cut with LeVay. I knew a lot of people there, and I didn't want to make a scene for me. So I didn't want to humiliate Mark, and I didn't want to cause a ruckus. And I never regretted anything that ever happened to me on a golf course more than not busting him at the time and not doing the right thing. And what happened subsequently was, because you're paired with the same other twosome for the first three days, I had to play golf with him for two more days. And he did everything he could to make me uncomfortable if i got over a putt he made sure he got in my peripheral vision if i asked him to move the putter uh, to move the ball uh, one one putter head one way or another so i could putt without touching his marker he would take the whole putter and he had like a 48 incher and he would do it with the length of the putter instead of the head of the putter so that when he went to replace it he replaced it three and four and five feet closer. He just moved the shaft to the right or the left, depending on how he could get closer to the hole. His partner never said anything. Luna knew what was going on, never said a word. And I just couldn't believe it. I didn't let him ruin my week, but it was the most dishonest display of cheating I'd ever, ever seen. And I can't even think what's in second place other than an incident years ago when... Uh, two guys were in the finals of my club championship and one of the guys hit his ball into the rough and we all looked for it for four and a half minutes and he screamed out, I've got it. Just as his opponent screamed, I've got it. So he dropped the ball in the rough and he got busted and he quit the club and he literally moved and nobody ever saw him again. So that was pretty awful. But this wow. was crazy. This is a professional tournament. I think Mark finished around 25th for the tournament And after the tournament was over, I went up to him and I told him everything that I saw happen. And I told him I was now going to go to the tournament organizers, that I knew it wouldn't affect his standing because it was after the fact and everything has been signed. But I wanted to make sure that the people who ran the tournament and the European tour knew exactly what they had been dealing with. And when I went to the organizers of the tournament, they said to me, We know all about him, and so that's what happened with Mark Rowe, and the only reason I raised it was because a writer friend of ours, Scott Michaud, told the story on Twitter about Alice Cooper stealing his golf ball, that they were playing in an event and Scott hit his ball and it landed on Alice Cooper's tee and he saw it land there and he walked over and then he said, does anybody see a ball? And Alice Cooper went, no, no, I haven't seen anything. And the writer in his group um who was uh Steve Elling later confirmed at lunch to Scott that Alice in fact had actually picked up the ball and put it in his pocket and it was now a free callaway and that Alice had lied about it and I said you think that's good have well, I got a story for you And so I told the Mark (laughs) Rowe story, and some people said, why did you bring it up? And I said, because somebody brought up a a cheating story. And I said, I've got one, too. And I said, and I made it public at the time to the tournament organizers. And I said, and it's 100% in my book. And I pray, I pray, I pray that Mark Rowe will come after me in some way when he sees this thing in print. Or when he hears that I put it on Twitter, I just defy him to come into my direction, and I welcome that so much.
1: Interesting story, Peter. Um, You mentioned book. Uh, You've talked in the past about writing a book and putting one together. It sounds like it's coming to be uh, more and more to uh, fruition.
0: It's the weirdest thing, Chris. You know, I... I I, I banged out about 50 Word document pages in early June. And then I just got stuck over the summer, and I couldn't figure out where to go next, and I couldn't figure out what to do next. And I had so many options, and I had writer's block, and I've been working on another project that wasn't going as well as I wanted. So you really need peace of mind to write. And I've done everything in golf. I've, I, I've, I've written, I've created, I've hosted, I've produced, I've produced, I've directed. Um, I've made infomercials, I've made commercials, I've made DVDs, i made 1,300 television shows, i made 1,700 radio shows. I mean, there isn't anything that I haven't done literally of any job that you can do in the sport. Wrote long-form interviews for golf magazines, some of which were particularly highly celebrated, like the one with Phil Mickelson where he said Tiger was stuck playing with inferior equipment, which got a big rise in the golf community and just before Phil won his first Masters in 2004. And writing is the hardest thing Thing. And then somebody, I, I decided to start doing Twitter, and I decided I was going to create a Twitter character for myself, a much edgier version of my normal day-to-day self, much like the way I just described the Mark Rose story, which I'm sure was a little edgy because it was a really uncomfortable thing and it upset me very much. So I thought, okay, I'm going to create this character. And I had um, friends with Sean Connery, and when Sean and I first met, the first 20 minutes that we met, there was nobody else there, and he started to tell me he knew exactly how I did my TV shows. So this is going back 15 years. He figured out how so I figured out how I was going to write the show. He knew that I even practiced certain sentences out loud. But he characterized me as an actor who was a golf savant. He said, you've created a character. He said, you're not an interviewer. He said, you've created this, this, this incredible character to handle all these situations and all these people. And he said, and it was brilliant. And so I decided, well, I'm going to create a character on Twitter. So I decided to come up with the edgiest version of myself and sort of a jerk sometimes, except when it's golf history, in which case I just lay it out for people to get it, because I know quite a bit of golf history, and So what happened was I would get all these people in my face after I started making these edgy tweets, and it would remind me of a story. You know, like somebody would say something about Mo Norman, and I'd go, oh, I forgot that story. And I'd make a little note as I was tweeting for like 90 minutes. So after like 90 minutes of tweeting and responding to all the stuff that was, you know, just coming at me after I would say something was starting to remind me of other stuff and after 90 minutes I would have like 10 notes on a piece of paper I would get off Twitter and I would come upstairs and Twitter makes you be sharp with your writing because you've got a limited number of characters or it makes you be something. You either have to pick a point of view, you either have to develop a character, you either have to explain golf history you either have to take down Brandel Chambly which is a great pleasure even though he's a friend of mine but you know people write to me and go, Brandle just said, Brandall said just said this, you're the only one who can answer him, you got to do it right away, and I'd go look for his tweet, and then I'd get right in his face, and um, so it's been helping me with my writing, and so I've been writing more, and like the prologue, which was eight pages, is now like 23 pages, so can't end up working out like that, because 23 pages of Word document writing is like 40 pages in a book. And a few publishers said you want to do 80,000 words, which is 300 or 350 pages of a book. And I'm a little bit more than halfway there now. And I've got a huge list on my phone every, you know, of, of little things on that little notepad they have in the iPhone and on legal yellow pads. And so each day that I do write, which is not every day, and I'm still having some issues about the discipline of writing and just sitting down and doing. I mean, there's nothing. There's no getting around it. You put your fanny in the seat and you do it and you do it and you do it. Now you either write for three hours or you decide you're going to write X number of pages but you set a goal. You know, and I've talked to a million writer friends of mine and they all have a different way of doing things. Some guys write one page a day and know that if they do it for a year they've got a book 365 pages. Other guys like Jim Dodson write for three hours and then he goes on the porch you know, and uh, smokes a cigar and has a drink and forgets about it until the next day. Another friend of mine said whenever you start writing just, writing, just keep writing, just keep writing, just keep writing. Don't worry if you've already repeated it in another chapter because you've gone back into a chapter. He said, go, 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 go. And he said, then you put it on the windowsill overnight and you come back in the morning and you take a look at where you are and then you figure out what you need to rearrange. He said, but once you're on a roll don't do anything to stop it. And he said, the hardest thing is to go back is to not go back and fix punctuation and, and typos. He said, so some people do and some people don't. I do. I I I can't go if I don't fix the stuff that, that I just wrote. And, uh, but I'm learning the windowsill technique. And, uh, so the book's coming along and it's, a lot different than I originally intended. It's uh, It's got tons of stories, but it's got some edgy stuff like the row stuff. And it's also got, you know, I spent two weeks with Sean Connery playing golf. So I've got all kinds of great Bond stuff about the women, about all sorts of cool stuff. And Sean was a wonderful golfer. He was an 18 where he was about 70 and 71 the two years we played. But he would always break 90 with his eighteen. And he very rarely said, give me a seven. He, he could get in front of most greens in just in one stroke under uh, regulation. He, you know, if he, he could get it within 50 yards on a par four, but he was a really good little wedge player, and he left himself a lot of 15-footers from 50 yards, and sometimes he made them and sometimes he didn't. But he was almost always in the hole, and he made lots and lots of fives and the occasional four, and he was shooting 86 or 87, but really good short game, really understood that he had to rely on good pitches from 35 to 50 yards in particular and he rarely dumped one he rarely bladed one he rarely left 30 feet he was really good about leaving 15 feet or less and it was a pleasure and he was Fantastic company, and I was told not to bring up Bond, but after he blew smoke at me for twenty minutes, literally he gushed. He said, "I'm your biggest fan." I'm thinking, what is going on here? So as soon as he did that, and we shared a cart on the first tee, we we got off the first tee in the cart, and I said to him, "So double O," and nobody's apparently ever called them double O. So I said, "So double O, who is the greatest Bond chick of them all?" And that, and he gave me a look, and we talked about it for the whole round. So <laughs> we, and then and then my host who had invited me to play with Sean heard me call him double o and he just about went apoplectic and he said to me you can't call him that i said you tell you ask sean if it's okay if i call him double o and i'm sure you're going to get a peter can call me anything he wants answer we've got we've got a mutual respect between us and we did and it was very very cool
1: so i'm not going to ask you to reveal it because i want everyone to buy the book once you're done with it does he, he, Can you talk about... Can you say you know who the girl was? I mean, you don't have to talk, but are you going to say who the okay. girl was? Uh, the point? only
0: thing I'll give away is, at one time, you also dated her. So if you can go ahead and figure that out, then you can tell everybody who it was. But it was one of the all-time greats, and uh, it was uh, Ursula Andrus who was... Uh, Honey Rider in Dr. No which was the first Bond film and they were in a private compound in Kingston Jamaica and she was married to John Derrick who was a photographer and an actor and a producer and a director and uh, Derek broke into the compound one night and uh, discovered Sean and Ursula and it was a very interesting scene the rest of which you'll have to read about absolutely
1: Couple more, Peter, before I let you go. Sure, buddy. President Bill Clinton, President Clinton, was an avid fan of your show, Golf Talk Live, on the Golf Channel. He taped it every day. One day, the White House has you know the VCR breaks, so he can't tape the show. Do you mind telling that story?
0: Well, I think you told it. I when uh, he his golf teacher was a guest I can't remember his name, on one of my shows, uh, the teaching show that I had Academy Live on the Golf Channel where I had 400 teachers over 8 years and my game went from a 2 to a 22, I literally couldn't play after a year and it was just too much information and I had had one swing thought literally for 20 years and it was Bill. but he said Clinton watches all your shows and I said seriously and I said well I'd like to meet him I said because I'd like him to come do a show I said you know he's an avid golfer and we won't talk politics or anything that would be uncomfortable for him, just like I do with everybody else. Never put anybody on the spot except Arnold once, and that didn't work out very well. And so I uh, – so. he told me, he said he he tapes the Monday night show, not all my shows, just the interview show called Golf Talk Live where I had every great player of the last century except Ben Hogan who was too sick and of course the few fellows who had passed away like Jones and Walter Hagen but you know I got a lot of those guys who were born in the early part of the century I got you know the two of the three boys from 1912, Byron Nelson and Sam Snead and Gene Sarazen, born in 1902. And, you know, so I, I was pretty lucky. And so one day the, the white house calls and, I get paged in the studio. I don't know what I was doing because I wasn't there very much except for the shows. And they said, Peter Kessler, come to the phone. So I went to the phone and somebody said, this is so-and-so from the White House and our VCR didn't work last night. And could you send us the show you did with whoever it was the night before? And I said, seriously? And she said, yeah, deadly serious. She said, Bill will not, the premise, the president will not be happy if we don't have this tomorrow. And I don't want it to be my fault. So I said, no problem. I said, I'll make a copy right now. We'll send it overnight. And years pass, and I'm playing golf where I play golf here in Orlando, Florida, where I live. And I walk into the men's washroom after a round to go wash my face. And I walk up to the sink, and who's standing at the next sink brushing his tongue with a toothbrush, literally, which I found out later is a really healthy thing to do, is Bill Clinton. And I look in the mirror... And he looks in the mirror, and he goes, Peter. And for some reason, I went, Bill, instead of Mr. President. And he said, man... He said, I was so upset when you got canned from that. He said, that was the craziest thing I ever saw. He said, I did a lot worse things as president than criticizing somebody who did the wrong thing. He said, I didn't care who it was. He said, that was completely insane. He said, I wanted to be on that show. He said, if there's anything I can do to help you get back on TV, he said, you do not hesitate to get a hold of me. And he gave me a card that just said Bill Clinton, and it had a number on it. It didn't have former president. It just said Bill Clinton, and it had a phone number. That was it no no email nothing else and uh he just went on and on and on and i love that show so much and he said you know are you as nice a person in real life as you made yourself out to be on tv and i said nobody's that nice are you kidding i said you know that was you know i was you know i said a lot of it was me of course it was the best sides of me but it was kind of a character that i created and then I told him about my conversation with Sean. He said, You oh, know, I love to play golf with 007. He said, I started to call him 007, and he looked at me, and I went, seriously? I said, I called him 00, and he laughed. And he said, well... He probably liked. He probably thought you did a better job than I did. <laughs> so we we had a really good laugh about it. So, uh, you know. So if I ever get the shot, I've still got that card. I don't know if that number's good, but we'll dig. We'll we'll dig that body up and we'll get him and we'll talk about golf. We'll talk about golf. Sean's too old to do it now. He's almost ninety. He's not doing so good. Um, I tried to contact him when I heard it was his son that was making Tommy's armor and you know I sent him a, a note and just begged him to introduce me to his son and I said you know there's never been a golf movie because there's never been a good golf consultant on the set to keep the producer and the director from getting into trouble and I said and I can be so helpful I said especially the period we're talking about here from 18 eh, 65 to you know 75 I said you know I just know it cold and you know and I, and I promise somebody. If I'm not the leading expert, I'm certainly one of the top three, and I can really, really, really keep your son out of trouble. And I didn't hear back, and somebody told me later that he never did get the note because I kind of asked, and somebody went to him and said, Do you ever get it? He said, no, I didn't get it. And um, But, you know, it was tragic. It was a horrendous film. The beards were terrible. They didn't know who old Tom was. The accents were wrong. And when young Tom Morris hit a 50-yard shot with what looked like a six-iron face without grooves from deep rough to a green, and it spun back violently – I kind of threw up in my mouth because there is no there's no such shot in golf as that taking a straight face club hitting it 50 yards and spinning it back with no grooves on the club face out of long grass to a green that's fairly flat not even sloping back towards you and I just you know and I, you know I just like every other golf movie there's never been a golf, good golf movie of any kind whatsoever Caddyshack is a comedy in a golf setting, and it was a wonderful film, but I don't think of it as a golf movie, and the only good golf scene that there's ever been in any movie, and I've seen Kal-El, there's a lot of them I couldn't get past the first few minutes, the Adam Sandler thing was, you know, it was embarrassing, Kevin Costner and Tin Cup when I saw he was wearing the same t-shirt that James Conn had in Godfather One, that wife beater t-shirt I said I can't watch this anymore so there's a lot of them I didn't make it past three or four minutes but the only great scene is the scene in Goldfinger with Sean Connery as 007 And uh, Gert Frobe is Goldfinger. And the reason the scene worked, in addition to it being brilliantly written, was because they were recreational golfers. They were like eight or ten handicappers. And they looked like eight or ten handicappers. So it was believable. You know, you look at the Glenn Ford movie, Follow the Sun, as Ben Hogan. He didn't play golf. He was walking in pain with a limp. Before the accident, he had a hat that was three sizes too big. It was so, 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 so horrible, so embarrassed for everybody that was in it. And every movie since then, too, just absolutely, you know, The Legend of Bagger Vance, Matt Damon was in. I played with Matt during the filming of that movie. He shot a 130, a one. Thirty, And that was with a lot of give me a sevens. I mean, this could have been like a serious get me an abacus to figure out this freaking score. I mean, you know, he <laughs> swung like a little girl. He was the nicest guy, though. I got to tell you, he was a horrible golfer because he never played golf before. He started playing like two days before. And I would have shot, shot 132. But an interesting thing happened with Matt Damon. We went out to dinner to a really nice restaurant, maybe 6 or 8 of us, 10 of us perhaps, and the waiter came to the table and wanted to present the specials, and a few people kept talking as the waiter started to talk. And Matt said, "Shh, let the man make his presentation." And I was so impressed with that. You know, and the the server said, "You know, we've got this and we've got that." But I just thought that It was so cool, and I was one of the ones who was quiet, because I had the same philosophy as Matt Damon, when somebody's making a presentation, you let them have their performance. And a waiter is, in part, a performer when he gives you the specials and tries to charm you and and to get your evening off to a good start and to to be engaging and smile. And Matt Damon made sure that the waiter in this restaurant got the full opportunity to make his presentation and act out his scene. It was really just the most lovely gesture.
1: So Peter, through the course of the stories you mentioned back on TV, right? When you're talking about President Clinton in the conversation. You know, last year I put out a list of five things that I was wishing for in twenty seventeen and around the game of golf. Right? And right at the top of the list was Peter Kessler back on the airwaves. And I've and I've put my twenty eighteen out there and it's still right at the top of the list, Peter Kessler Back on the airwaves. Are we getting any closer?
0: I Well, every year, for say the six or eight last years, somebody comes to me every year and says, would you like to do TV shows again? And of course I say yes. It's pretty much the only thing I'm good at. And so... You need two things, of course, as you know better than anybody. You need distribution. You need a channel, a network, a home, something, a place to broadcast from. And you either need investor dollars so you can shoot new shows, or you need some ad sales in advance so you can shoot some stuff instead of trying to take it out of your own pocket, banging out a bunch of shows, getting up the number of people who watch your stuff, and then going to advertisers. It's a, That's a heartbreaking, no-win scenario. So... Every year it falls apart. But this year, I ran into uh, a couple of guys um, who have the wherewithal on distribution and the potential for investor and or ad dollars, and we're still early in the process. And it could be a really cool web presence or it could be a TV presence. I'm not sure at this point. But uh, if it comes to be, one of the things that they will do is ask me to do shows like I used to do uh, an instructional show and an interview show and probably this time with golfers and celebrities who play golf like Bill Clinton and uh, but it's nowhere near done it's it's you know we might as well call it we're at the the starting line but I've got the right people surrounding me so it's still a long shot but if it happens I'll get to do what I'm good at and uh, and it'll be a lot of fun and I don't think i I've forgotten how to do it, and you know, and I've certainly stayed sharp on golf history, and and that's kind of why I like the Twitter thing because somebody always says, you know, Bobby Jones wasn't as great as they say, and then that just lights a fire under me, and then I go, okay, now make sure you do it edgy, don't don't be real nice, but teach him golf history. <laughs> But, you know, if it's a jerky thing to you, then you jerky thing to them back and really kick the stuffing out of them. And I get so many direct messages where people go, you're the only guy on Twitter who tells it like it is. You're the only honest person on Twitter. You're the only reason I'm on Twitter. You're the best follow on Twitter. My father loved you. And I write back and say, your father loves me. Give me his number. Give me his name. I'll call his cell phone tomorrow. And they go, really? And I go, absolutely. I said, you know, I'm... I said, anybody who says they don't like it when somebody says I'm a big fan, that's just a total lie. I said, unless you're somebody like Tiger and that's all you hear. I said, but in my life, you know, it's always been proportionate. You know, if I if I go to a golf course I've never been to before, six or eight or ten people will approach me over the course of the day, either in the pro shop or around the first tee or when I come in and have a bite to eat or whatever. You know, the the, the guy who's the marshal will always know me because you know he's retired and so he's going to be older than me and he's going to have been familiar with my stuff and be a big fan and and all that sort of stuff. So you know, I I, I really like all of that. And so when somebody says their dad's a huge fan, I Gimme give, give me the name, give me the number, I'll call him I'll call him right now if you want me to. And I've done it a bunch of times. And last year a friend of mine said, you know, I keep meaning to get you to call my dad and I said and I've asked you six or eight times for his number, gimme his number And and, and we didn't do it at the end of a dinner that I go to every six weeks. A friend of mine for 28 years has been holding a gentleman's dinner where he invites 20 guys every six weeks. And he asks sort of two questions, and everybody around the table has got to answer them like... Uh how were you like your dad? What did what did you not do as well as your dad? What did you do better than your dad? I mean some you know, some stuff that you have to think about it, and we go around the table or, you know, what do you want your obituary to say? And I said, I want mine to say he was a man of many possibilities, most of them brilliantly realized. <laughs>
1: which was actually
0: Noel Coward's epitaph, which he chose for himself.
1: Peter, if if I'm not your biggest fan, I'm certainly in the top three, and I would take you you over Tiger. You're definitely a top three, no question.
0: You're nobody's nicer to me online than you are. I mean, you put these things out every week. You, I wish I had your disposition. You, you put out the nicest things every week. You say the nicest things about me, the Hall of Fame thing. I was so flattered. The, I hope you get back on TV thing. I was, I was so pleased. I was so thrilled. I was so flattered again there. You know, you have me on the show. You You, you blow smoke at me, but I know you mean it and uh and I love doing the show and and really you know to turn it on its head uh, you know you do so much stuff for sports and for charity and then the stuff with the armed forces. I mean, you make such a big contribution and you give everybody else the credit and stuff. I mean, you're just freaking great at what you do. You're a great researcher. You're a great interviewer. You're a thoughtful, decent, good human being. And everybody knows that. They know that you're just a good man and there's not a lot of good men and you certainly are one of them. And so I'm really thrilled that we have this relationship. And I'm always pleased when you think well of me, because when a good man thinks well of you, it means so much more than if it's just Joe Schmo that, you know, you might not be a, a really good man, and you're you're a good man in the in the biblical sense of the word, and in the classic sense of the word, and in the literal sense of the word, and so you know, a compliment from you just means so much, and and I feel like you've accomplished so much in your efforts to draw attention to things that are important to you, all of which are good, and all of which are right, and all of which are true. So I'm just I'm just thrilled that, that I'm your friend.
1: That might be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me, and I appreciate that more than you can possibly imagine, Peter. Thank you oh, for that very, very much. And, and, You're and a great thing, man. And, and as you know, it, it's certainly reciprocal. And, and one, of the, one of the things that this show, and you know, I do a, another one on the football side, but one of, one of the things that I still pinch myself over is that I can send you a text message and you know it's me. That, that to me, to think that Chris Mascara was in Peter Kessler's contact list Still blows me away to even you know. What are you talking I, about? I eat, wait. But... I wait for those damn things. I go. Well, how come he hasn't <laughs> called me? And I don't hear from him. You know. So
0: actually, it's just the opposite because I get one. I go about freaking time the dude called me. I haven't been on for a few months. He has. You know. Was he So I look forward to those. No, I don't just answer
1: him. I'm waiting for him, dude. <laughs> well, I appreciate that very much, Peter. You're fantastic. You know how much I love you. I appreciate the time tonight, Peter. And, Thanks, bud. And, uh, and, and just so you know, one of the things that you've taught me about th- doing this show, or any interview, to be honest with you, is, to, is, is something that I always keep in the back of my mind. Because I always hear your voice in the back of my mind when I'm doing an interview. Because I think my job is to say is ask a question and then get the hell out of the way and let you, or whoever my guest is, go. And that, that's something that you've taught me that I have always kept, whether it's on this show or it's on the other one, to know a, a good interview is me saying very little and then getting out of the way so that my guest can say a lot. And there's and nobody else th- I would rather say a lot than you. Well, and
0: that's the job, as you know well know, that I know. And, you know, a really good interviewer will ask a really good question and then get six or eight minutes in return. And I know that's what you want from me. And I know that I need that much room. I, I need the full canvas to get out all of the stuff and make the historical reference and the connection and the tie in. And, and, you know, I need time to do that. You know, and Herb Wynn, the great writer, said, man, it takes me 5,000 words just to warm up. Up. So, I'm always appreciative that you just you just lay back and you let me do what you want me to do, which is to entertain your listeners. And I'm always thrilled to do it, and I love the feedback.
1: I appreciate it, Peter. Take care, my friend. Happy New Year! I hope this uh this you year too. brings everything that you are looking for and that Thanks, uh, I am wishing for for you. So, take care, my friend. You're we'll so catch sweet. up soon. You're so sweet. Thank you, Chris. Take good care, buddy. That's the great Peter Kessler, folks, and as you heard on, you know, about the Twitter piece, go check him out. You gotta follow Peter Add Peter Kessler. It's very easy. Add Peter Kessler on Twitter. You can also find him on Facebook. There is, uh, there's just no one, but no one like him, no one better than him, and, uh, and anything that he has done. And uh, if there's, you know, an interview Hall of Fame, and there is, right, you know, there should be a, a wing in there, you know, that's uh, got more representation in the Pro Golf Hall of Fame, but Peter Kessler's bust certainly belongs right there.